0: Hey there, it's Nick. And um, normally when I do a sort of pre-show announcement, um, I'm operating off of some kind of script. And um, I'm not doing that right now because I wanted to speak completely from the heart. And also because I have, quite frankly, no idea what I want (laughs) to say. I'm not even sure I'm actually even going to put this in. Um, Some people have described Love and Radio as existing in sort of another dimension, out of time and place, and it's something that I really love about the show, and hopefully you do too. Um, But with the events of uh, the most recent U.S. presidential election, I can't help but feel that tone is a little gauche at the moment. And I guess why I wanted to talk to you is... In the next few weeks, months, I'm going to be deeply considering what this means for us creatively, topically, and I want to get your feedback of what you, what you think. I wanted to hear from you guys about how I can be of service to you all. Maybe that means doing exactly what we've always been doing giving people a space for empathy and nuance in a time which I'm willing to bet is not going to be very nuanced in the next few years. Um, Maybe we can use the tools that we have developed on the show um, to cover new things. So I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at contact at loveandradio.org. You could leave a comment on our Facebook page for this episode's uh, post um, or you could leave us a voicemail the number is up on our website thanks for listening to this and uh for this show um, I'm actually gonna play an episode which was not originally scheduled for this uh tonally it's a little bit different maybe uh, not quite as stressful as a lot of uh, a lot of episodes as we've done but it's a really beautiful piece and uh, I hope you enjoy it Thanks.
1: I once jumped out of a helicopter with a parachute and I was approaching the ground and I came under fire from the Viet Cong. And you know you're under fire. I mean, you can't see a bullet, but you can see a tracer. And every 10 bullets is a tracer. It's, ours were red or green. Theirs were white. And I saw these tracers coming at me, between my legs, to the left of me, to the right of me. And I started bargaining with God. I said, okay, take my left foot, but don't take my balls or my penis and don't take my right hand and don't take my eyes. Don't let anything happen to my face, but you can have my left foot. (laughs) And then I hit the ground and it was over. And I survived. I have to tell you the truth. I went through such fear and horror during that experience that I don't feel fear anymore. I mean, since that couple of minutes that it, that it took, I have not felt fear in the same way. Again,
0: from Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode: Wood Fighting with Steel, featuring Stephen Nietzsche.
1: It's wood fighting with with steel, right? When I first moved here, <laughs> I used to spend seven months chopping wood uh, because the place wasn't insulated. And I, I had to burn wood constantly in order to keep it warm. So, that's what I'm doing. There. Do, do you ever stop to wonder when you're up out here? Do, yeah. do you ever
0: stop to wonder how you ended up here?
1: Uh, I, to be honest, my life has a miraculous quality. Uh, I began to feel that in Vietnam. My codename was 32 November, the end of November, after my name, Nightshin. One of the glories of war is the love and trust that develops between the men in your platoon. There's nothing like that, there's no love like that. This wood has been drying all year. It takes a beautiful flame. See? The winter is very lovely here. I sit and relax by the fire. And I have no thoughts in my head. It's so peaceful, you know? It was in 1991. It was Ty's Bar in Brooklyn. It was a gay bar and everyone was dressed in black except one man and he was wearing a white shirt. And we started talking. I looked at him and I said, you are Norwegian. And he laughed and he said, I don't know how you know that, but I was adopted by a Norwegian family And yes, I am Norwegian and live in Norway. (laughs) Imagine. So we walked home together, and uh, he stayed with me for three days while I sang to him. (laughs) So we fell in love. I see him. As he wakens In the morning morning, He reaches reaches out out His hands And and without a word As his fingers Softly fall Upon upon my face He lights the flames of desire and makes me want him he was absolutely the best and it's a thousand pities we couldn't manage to uh build a relationship together we were married for eight years This is the thing about Vietnam veterans. We like to be alone. We need to be alone. We need our own space. But the reason that we don't like to talk about Vietnam is because ordinary people do not understand this. And you don't want to see ordinary people's reactions because their reactions are on such a low level that it's horrifying talk about Vietnam, they want to know how many people you killed. Like it's table talk, you know. It's like something that you you want to just tell a stranger, how many people I killed. And that's the only thing that they have on their minds. Did you kill someone? How many? So that's one of the reasons why we don't talk about it. We pretend that it's all so horrible and awful. We just don't want to talk about it to ordinary people, because it was an extraordinary experience to be in combat, to help people, to be close to people, to be in a trench, in a three-day bombardment. Imagine how close you become to the person next to you. Vietnam was like an extension of my childhood because it had the same quality of uh, terror and horror with violence and the possibility of uh, death every day. Um, My mother was schizophrenic, and my father was uh, an alcoholic, very violent, and uh, he himself had been in World War II. Uh, He was a doctor in South Pacific... And I think it was uh, hard for him to come back and find a one-year-old baby boy that was a center of attention. One summer, my father locked me in the house for for the summer. I wasn't allowed to go out. And other times, um, I had to sit in a chair all day, and he would fly into a rage and kick me in the shins with his uh, shoes unbelievable pain. And it was obvious to me, even as a little, little child, that he was insane. Something was terribly wrong. I remember once I did buy a hamster, and I put it in a box. And uh, my father took it and stamped it to death against the street, against the curbstone. You know, what do you make of that? I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, I was just a kid. I needed my mother. I needed my father. And that's what I had. I also had a friend named Arlene. We used to have these horrifying conversations. What we would have to do to be loved. We talked about that. She would have to get braces on her teeth And I thought that I would have to um, give my life on the battlefield to be loved, to be respected, to be worthy of something. See, Vietnam was perfect for me because I had a death wish. So I was psychologically prepared for Vietnam. Barry Sadler had been a Green Beret. And he uh, wrote the Ballad of the Green Berets. Fighting, Fighting soldiers, soldiers from the from skies, the fearless men who, Fear men who jump and dive. A hundred one, men one, will test today, but only three wear the Green Beret. And Beret... I thought, OK, I'm going to be one of the three. I was in sort of a subculture, which was anti-war. People I knew would claim to be gay, whether they were or not, and they wouldn't take you if you were homosexual. And they were really shocked, horrified that I volunteered. Here we're coming to the well. Have you made this? Huh? Have you made the well? No, that well has been here its for a hundred years or more. It's a very famous spring. I let my bucket down like this. See? And then I push it under It's stick. You see, it fills up. In the old days, the only thing I ever wanted to drink was booze. Now, now I drink well water. I was not sexual in any way. No wet dreams, no masturbation, no sex until I was 15. Then I read a book called The Chapman Report. It was a book about sexuality. And I started thinking about sex. And there was this boy in my Sunday school that I thought was uh, sexy and handsome. So thinking about him... And thinking about it, I thought to myself, I wonder what it would be like to masturbate. Because I had never. So I did. My, my, my. What an extraordinary experience that was. And my first thought was, here in your wretched life, there is this magnificence. Because the. Pleasure was almost unbearable. So I became a great fan of masturbation and always thinking of men and not women. I never thought one day I'm going to grow up to be a homosexual. You know, gay people were like the uh, cartoon characters at best that people laughed at. Or they were perverts and degenerates that people felt free to hurt and kill. I mean, one certainly didn't want to be like that. I certainly did not. To be honest, I really didn't want to go on living. but Somehow I wanted my life to have a meaning in a sort of get it over with in a meaningful way. So I wanted to um, be a medic in the Special Forces. You get on a plane... And it's a little strange because there's no one on the plane but soldiers. I forget exactly how long we were in the air. I think it was uh, 15 hours. And basically it was all about, you know, wanting to just get off the plane and get get started with it. Strange thing was, when we reached Vietnam, the plane came under fire. I didn't have to wait for my Vietnam experience to begin after a while. It began immediately while I was still in the air. So there I was in Vietnam, 1968 during the Tet Offensive. The uh, Americans were in retreat. The Viet Cong were winning, bombing our bases. So eventually I did get out into the field, into a top-secret mission in southern Vietnam on the Cambodian border in a place called uh, Wat Kadol. It was a camp that overlooked the sea, and there were the seven mountains standing up there, mountains with names like Nui Gai, Nui Koto, Nui Sam, Nui Tram, Nui Badin, I learned that there were uh, twenty thousand villages all around us, and twenty-three Americans on the A-team, and I—I I was their doctor. I was the only medic down there. So you could imagine the impact of that situation on a twenty-two-year-old uh, man. Can you? Can you? talk a little bit more about that brotherhood between
0: the soldiers and the relationship you developed with your new commander.
1: He was 26 years old, he was tall, dark and handsome, very brave soldier, he was a captain, and um uh, I got an intense feeling of attraction to him, a sensation I did not know what it was. I had never had it before. I used to see 200 people a day on the average. I delivered their babies, pulled their teeth, inoculated them for diseases. It was extremely fulfilling for me. Of course, that burns you out, though. I couldn't find time to go to sleep. I was working all the time. So I used morphine and I used Demerol, And I used amphetamines to stay awake, and I used Seconol to go to sleep. And so I became, you know, a polydrug junkie. Towards the end of it, I I confess I lost my mind. I remember um, American forces took a mountaintop. It was called Nui Koto. 950 Casualties, Americans and Vietnamese. And I was the one who received these bodies from helicopters. It took me almost four days to get them off the landing strip. They're beginning to stink, you know. And one of them was a good friend of mine. And it looked like a little angel sleeping. I remember thinking, you should feel something, this should bother you, but I felt nothing.
0: Can, can, you, can you try to de- describe how your relationship with your commander developed from just uh, meeting each
1: other into becoming lovers? It's not that it developed, it was just there. Suddenly it was there. Every night, we were in the team house and he'd come up to me and say, "Uh, Doc, you wanna take a ride? I'd say, sure. We'd go out, get on his motorcycle and take a ride with my arms around his waist, like a girl, like a woman. My commander and I were very close. And any time he went on uh, these operations, he would take me with him. So one day, we were on an operation to remove a nest of snipers from the top of a mountain. And the way we did this was to walk down the valley in their range and to try to draw fire so we could locate them, call in the gunships and blast them out and kill them. We marched across the rice paddies. We came under fire. We took cover behind this mud dike that was about six inches high. You hear the uh, rounds going off. You see the fire from the rifles up on the hill. It's you know, the spark. And you see the rounds hitting at your feet. You you hear them through the vegetation. Ch-ch. My commander had the radio. He said to me, okay, Doc, I want you to run across the paddy and draw rounds while I call in the gunships. I didn't think, you see, that's the thing about combat. You don't think, you don't reflect, you don't uh, wonder. You just do, you move. I gave him a dirty look, I got up and I ran. started running across the paddy, sort of weaving, you know, from side to side. And I thought, this is the end. And I ran so hard that my belt flew open and my pants fell down. So I dived behind a bush. There was a red ant hill. Now I'm talking about Cambodian red ants. I mean, these. And I thought, oh, my God, what on earth have I gotten myself into now? I stood up and brushed them off, pulled up my pants, and tightened the belt and started running again. They were so close to me, they were hitting my, my boots. <laughs> if you could imagine. The gunships came and blasted them out. So there were five of them. So he and I killed five people. I mean, if you can call that killing, I took part in killing five people, five people. We never talked about it. We never discussed it. You don't talk about these things. You just do them. Say a few words, that's all. We loved each other. We did not know, neither he nor I, that we had a homophile tendency, which you see is normal for all men and comes out in all male company when you're together. And you have to rely on one another. It's a very normal and a very, very beautiful form of love. I have to say that. It's not a perversion. It's nothing dark about it, nothing evil about it, nothing wrong. It comes out and it's there. And some of us are more courageous about admitting it than others. A couple of months later, I got evacuated, and that's the end of it. I was sent home. Did you ever see any of them again? No. I never did. This wood is wet, so it's not so easy to chop. But you know, after a while, it it gives in. (laughs) There. Looking back on your life, can you reflect a little bit about what love has I meant, and what love has been in your life? You know, it's like a, a line from one of the Lynn's songs. She sings, uh, His love is all he's got to give, but he gives it all to me. It's been my salvation to love. I couldn't have managed without That's what got me through Vietnam, tell you the truth. Love is what uh, kept me going, keeps me going. And love, and love is the foundation we lean on. All you need is love. To ease your mind And does it Have to be right To be called Love When he gives me More loving Than a lifetime Of looking Could ever find It's one of my favorite songs.
0: That's it for Love & Radio. This episode was produced by Sindra Leganger, originally for NRK Radio, Norway's public broadcasting company. You can find a link to the original Norwegian-language version at our website. Love & Radio is produced by Brendan Baker, Jesse Carrier, Stephen Jackson, and myself. Radiotopia's executive producer is Julie Shapiro. And Radiotopia's founding sponsors are The Knight Foundation, and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Be sure to write us a horrible poem as a review in iTunes. I love reading them, and it helps other people discover the show. Also, be sure to follow us on Friendster. Thanks for listening.